the Art of Leadership Network. Well, hello, everybody. This is the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and this is episode 506. We are going to talk to Brian Tome today. And today's episode is brought to you by He Gets Us. You can go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry and sign up for the largest faith campaign in history. And by Convoy of Hope, uh, it's time to help the war victims in Ukraine. And you can do it by going to convoyofhope.org. That's convoyofhope.org slash donate. And man, I'm so glad you joined us today. I'm really hoping our time together helps you thrive in life and leadership. That is the goal of this. And you know, we're in a really interesting season where everybody's trying to figure out what end is up. And if you're a church leader or invested in the church, you're thinking about the correlation between digital and in-person. And frankly, if you're in business, you're probably thinking about the same thing, right? Like your model changed. So Today, I sit down with Crossroads Church founding pastor Brian Tome, and we talk about what's wrong with church online, what 74 million Americans are looking for in an online church experience, and we also get into what disqualifies pastors for ministry, and he's thought about this a lot and has a couple of things in common that every pastor who seems to fall shares. And also, we're talking about rebuilding for the future. So Brian is the founding and senior pastor of Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, 2017's fastest growing church in America. Then he'll tell you he uh, stopped counting or submitting their <laughs> their uh, numbers to Outreach Magazine. He's authored four books, including his bestseller, The Five Marks of a Man. He also hosts the Aggressive Life podcast. And he's, well, done a lot of things, but he's re- released an adventure ride TV show called Phantom Lake on Amazon Prime and so much more. It's good to have Brian on the podcast. And by now, you may have seen or heard the ads online or in mainstream media about He Gets Us. It's a campaign about Jesus that's challenging people's perceptions about who he is. And you're probably asking yourself, okay, what's this about? Who's behind it? Is it a good thing? Or maybe you're even asking how you can get involved. Well, you can get involved. So to answer a couple of the questions, He Gets Us is backed by months of in-depth research and was created to help people meet and relate to the real Jesus of the Bible. Investors have given it a budget in excess of $100 million. But what makes it really interesting is how people who respond to the campaign get connected with local churches. So there have literally been millions of views on YouTube, uh, so much on social media, plus nearly half a million people visiting the He Gets Us website and your church can get plugged in. So what you need to do if you want to meet some of these people responding to the campaign is become a church partner by going to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. When you do that, you're going to get coaching and certification that empowers your leaders and volunteers to connect. You'll get Bible studies and conversation guides and info on how your church can connect with the people who respond. There's literally millions of people. So head on over to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash C-A-R-E-Y to get your church involved today. And my friends over at Convoy of Hope are helping the war victims in Ukraine, not just there, but around the world. When there's a disaster in America, they're there. When there's one in Canada, they're there. When they're there anywhere in the world, they show up. And in Ukraine alone, they've served over 100,000 individuals. They're actively distributing supplies, not just in Ukraine, but in Romania, Poland, Moldova, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Hungary, and Austria because of the impact of the crisis there. And here's what they're doing. 
They know how to get things like food, hygiene supplies, feminine supplies, baby supplies, medical supplies, blankets, bedding, clothing, and so much more to actual people. They don't get like stopped up by governments or anything like that. And if you want to help, maybe your church wants to get behind it, you want to get behind it personally, visit convoyofhope.org slash donate. That's convoyofhope.org slash donate. Well, without further ado, so glad you're along for this episode. Welcome to all of our new listeners. And if you enjoy this, not only subscribe, but maybe leave a rating and review and give us a shout out on social media. Here's my conversation with Brian Tome. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's just great to have you. Carrie, it's fantastic to be with you. Long time listener, first time caller. Awesome. Well, we had a chance to hang out a little bit in person a few months ago, and I thought, you know what? And we did before, too. We spoke at events at different places, but it was a really good connection. And we started a conversation when we were together at that event that I kind of wanted to pick up and, and finish on the show. But I want to start way earlier than that, because you're one of the leaders who has pastored a mega church now in 2017, fastest growing church in America. Uh, definitely one of the largest, but you started around the same time I did. I started in ministry in 95. You started in 96. So 26 years at Crossroads in Cincinnati, and you've led through it all. Um, give us a little recap, and then I want to talk about the changes. Like, I bet you it feels like you've led five churches. <laughs> yes, the recap. Where do you want me to start? Like, uh, I was born at a very early age or <laughs> born at a young age. Well, let's start maybe around 96 because the church was started before you. Was no, it not? I started the church. Okay. I was reading your timeline and I thought it was a couple of people wanted to start the church and you applied well, to the church. I'm sorry. I said I started the church. I, I answered an ad in the Willow Creek Exchange. It was a magazine job sheet that Willow Creek used to put out. I answered an ad that 11 people placed who were looking for a founding senior pastor. And uh, they go. were all, yeah, they were all about 30 years old and they, they said, look, we've got enough savings or we've got home equity on our houses that we can cover your salary for a year and we'll help you roll up our sleeves and we'll all be in this together. And then after that, if it makes it great, if it doesn't, then we, we feel like we've done something God wanted us to try. So that was what happened in 19. Well, we, I moved to Cincinnati in 95 from Pittsburgh and then came in 19. 96 to start the church uh, several months later. So if we can camp on that for a second, that's interesting because often the template would be, you know, well, I'm going to be the senior pastor, I'll assemble the team and we'll start the church together. But you came into an existing vision and I'm thinking back to a couple of churches I've consulted with. That isn't always a good recipe. Like sometimes those 11 people would have a vision for what church would be that may or may not line up with yours. Was that an issue for you or was it like synchronicity from day one? Uh, th there were issues. I did all the church planting workshops and church planting learning labs and stuff with everybody I could ahead of time. So I was really up on my knowledge. And this is not the way you're supposed to start church. You're not supposed to go in where somebody could actually hang you. And unfortunately, I knew that, and I kind of went in with a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of sense of protectionism. I am, I'm adopted. And so one of the things that happens with those of us who are adopted is we have a real sense of rejection. We feel rejected very easily, very quickly. And one of the ways we combat that is we reject other people before they can reject us. So wow. with some of the people in that core, I went in 
kind of with my dukes up, making sure I wasn't wasn't going to get hurt. And uh, fortunately, uh, they're just a group of great, great people, as as with all core groups. Uh, a good percentage of them didn't last a few years, but uh, everyone gave it uh, a good try and God used that group. And I'm very thankful for them. And and four of them are still huge, huge core part of the church. I tell you, I, actually, six of them are. So it's good stuff. Is that a fun part of leadership? I mean, I have, you know, I inherited three historic Presbyterian congregations that eventually became Conexus. And, you know, of the original 40, 50 people adding all three churches together, there might be 10 left. A lot of them were in their 70s, and that was in the 90s. So they're just not here anymore. But it gives me so much joy. And I think back on those early days, often with fondness, there was a lot of challenges, but what's it like to lead someone for a quarter century? You know, you don't see everybody like you wish you would in a smaller church or a single church location, you could bump into folks. So my paranoia, my woundedness of feeling rejection, I'm always assuming that people have left the church when I haven't seen them. And then when I see them, I'm like, oh, oh, you're here. Oh, I love you. There's, there really is a camaraderie and a joy and love with someone who's been in the fight with you for decades or just years and years and years. It's, it's, it's really heartwarming. I'm, I'm a team guy. I, I like mm-hmm. to operate in teams. So it, it's, I've got to spell out that I'm, even though I say I started the church, I was the pastor, the first founding pastor, but it's easy to say oh, it's a team, man. There's no way you, you drop me in someplace else without those 11 people. I, I don't, I don't know that I could have done it. My God could do anything he wants, but um, I'm not deluded that uh, I, I need great people around me. Well, the church in the nineties is not the church of 2010 is not the church of 2017 and who knows what the church of 2022 and beyond is like you and I will get into that uh, later in this conversation, but talk about some of the evolutions or revolutions you've had to face as a leader over, you know, all of that time. Well, I'm old enough now to be able to look back on eras in history and some of the stuff you'll remember and you know, cause we're not too far off on age, but yeah, when Crossroads started in 1996, that was at kind of the zenith of the seeker movement. And you would have these was. debates over, wait a minute, seeker driven, seeker sensitive, seeker, whatever. And you just have all of these ongoing battles. It also wasn't too far after the worship wars of, I came from a church before that you couldn't, you have, if you have blended worship, which was traditional songs and guitar songs, you had blended mutiny or people, everyone just fighting with one another. So you'd have churches that had one <laughs> service was contemporary, one service. I mean, those, I remember those days in 1996, 97, it was, it, it was really quite tumultuous. So to start a church where he said, look, no, this is what we are. We're not blended. We're not going to have an organ. Uh, you know, we were the first to at least we knew to be using video heavily and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And so when Crossroads started, there was just a lot of new things that we did that wasn't very common. And then we kept innovating and all that stuff stored to happen and adding services, buying a building, double in three months, triple in six months, add another building on, just add a outreach. I mean, it was just like you you get to a place where things just start to – uh, they go, momentum is really easy. Whereas the first, you know, two years, everything is pushing water uphill and then eventually catches and 
stuff just starts to happen. You have a lot of problems, but you have momentum on your side. And that, you know, that happened for a while. And, uh, and then, you know, then, then you hit a wall and, and, and it doesn't happen for a while. And then you've got to realize, all right, I've, I've spent a lot of time becoming an expert on church planting. I spent a long time being an expert on how to grow a church, whether it's multi-site or whatever. Now I'm in the phase of my life and my career where, where I've got to now become an expert in how do you, how do you get a church from plateauing back to growth mode? How do you even get a church that's declined back into growth mode? And normally, if someone's at the helm for 26 years, it's time they're they're off. They're they either yeah they're they're off to a new place or they're just phoning it in and collecting their fat paycheck, you know. And so I've had has have some time with God. Like this next run is this is this level of leadership a whole new different level, one that's foreign to me, one that I haven't ta- gone to take a seminar with. Am, am I up for that task? And I am. I am. Yeah, that is a really good point. So let's camp on that for a little bit. Um, you were, according to Outreach Magazine, the fastest growing church in America in 2017. 2020 was a, a sucker punch in the gut to to every single leader on the planet in so many ways. Um, obviously, that momentum didn't continue the way you imagined it would. So let's talk about these last few years. What happened to Crossroads during the pandemic? Where are you now? And I'd love to explore, yeah, after 26 years, how do you find gas in the tank to keep going? Well, we were fastest growing church by Outreach Magazine two or three years. And then after that last year, which if it was 2000, I don't know if it was the first or the last year, whatever it was, after that one, I said, let's not turn in our numbers anymore. Let's, <laughs> let's go out on top. Let's go out on top. <laughs> and, and I also felt, this is just me now. This is not outreach. This is not the list. I started to feel like a corporate CEO that was becoming addicted to quarterly returns and not thinking about the long-term growth and health of the organization. I, I was started to think through the year, hey, what's our numbers going to look like when we turn them in? What, what was it? It was normally Easter in the previous two months or something like that. And I just, I just started to think, what, what could we do to increase attendance or how are we doing attendance? It's just, I feel, I'm feeling like a CEO trying to bolster mm-hmm. attendance so I look good on this, this list. I'm not thinking of a long-term steward. Um, so it's probably healthiest for me and for us to, to get off that list. So we got off the list. We stopped turning in our numbers. And, um, and it wasn't too long after that that we hit, a, hit, we hit a plateau. And then it wasn't too long after that that we uh, – went into a decline. Some of that is, is, was due to getting so focused on growth and organizational mechanics that we lost sight of pastoring people and people Mm. just could feel that they they, Mm. they could. Part of it was we got caught up in the cultural zeitgeist of politics we used to always wear on our sleeve we are an apolitical zone we're not going to tell you how to vote we're not going to get into politics and then culture shifted where culture didn't appreciate that anymore culture Mm -hmm. especially the younger the younger generation wants to hear what you think and if they if you're not telling what you think they think that you're weak and you're shirking back and so i started being a little more forthright on certain issues and 
when that happened, our church that was kind of in the middle is in the middle, the average person, all the people on the polls started getting upset one way or the other. And we started having a lot of exodus through that as well. Hmm. Yeah. You're not the only leader I've talked to about political exodus. And I think you're right. There is a change. Like there's, you know, the worst case of it is, is virtue signaling where every time something happens, you've got to say where you stand on an issue. I think the most charitable thing is, you know, perhaps this is a values driven generation that's coming up. Like it really does matter how you care for the earth or it really does matter what you think about racism or it really does matter what you think about justice and fairness. And, you know, that that's probably the healthier side of it. How are you navigating that? Because you're right. As soon as, particularly in America today, you open your mouth and you declare an issue and 50% of the room is almost an instant disagreement. Is that what you're finding? Or are you finding more unity through that after the initial polls disappear? No, no, I'm not finding any unity in it at all. No, <laughs> no. no, not at all. In fact, I'm about ready to declare that we're, we're going to stop doing that. And, and to hear me here, we're not, or I'm not, name any political pastor you can think of that supports the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or comes right. out. Of what, I, so I'm you're not, not saying I've vote never, this way. You, you no, would never do that. No. Right. And I've never been close to telling people how to think on certain issues at all. But when you start talking about race a bit more, you, uh, you lose all the way around. You lose all the way around. I heard someone say it. I don't know who it was, but I'll just quote it. Uh, When it comes to race, you can't win. You can lose, but you can't stop. No matter what you say when it relates to race, it's never going to be enough or it's going to be too much or it's going to be not said the right way or it's going to be followed up with, yeah, but what are you doing? It's just, and that's just race. I mean, it just, mm. it's just, it's tough, tough, tough. And then you layer on to that, what do you do with people who want a religious exemption for vaccines and they think their church should give them that and you're not going to give them that? And are you saying you for mandating vaccines and taking away freedoms? Are you saying this? It's everybody, Carrie, everybody is, we've always been on edge. That's why books like Margin have existed and Room to Breathe, all these, we've always been on edge. But because of all the stress in our country over the last two years, the amount of breathing room people have to flex on issues and understand and empathize, that's gone. And they don't have the bandwidth or the energy to consider something that makes them think. You know, Donald Miller talked about this in his practice. Uh, we've made a lot of money off of it with marketing is that, you know, the human brain exists to save calories. I don't know mm-hmm. if you heard. Yeah. Cause you yeah, know, I've heard him say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get, when I, when I work out, I don't get hungry. I get thirsty, but when I think I get hungry because our brain, our brain is burning calories. And so the point of our body, our brain is to conserve calories or you die. So the brain doesn't want to think hard and complex things. It wants, oh, got it. I got it. I figured it out. I got it. That's why the easy slogan always carries the day because people don't want to think about it. And that's why in this age, when you try to come against somebody's ideology, you're not even trying to come against their ideology. You say something that someone doesn't like, they're conserving calories. They've got no bandwidth and they shut down and they shut you down. It's not a good time. And to they're like, delete or whatever. Yes, no, I want to go back to what you said on race. Cause you, you said, you know, you can't win, you can lose, but you can't stop. 
Are you saying, does that, just for clarification, you mean it's such an important issue you need to keep going on it? Or what did you mean by that? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, I, yeah. I spoke with a family member uh, just yesterday, close family member, saying, hey, I think we're just talking about this too much and um, it's kind of turning me off. And then I speak with a African-American staff worker who says, hey, I've been racially profiled three times this last week. What does that look like? But what looks like uh, a little girl and her mom, and the little girl looks at him, points, points at him, and screams, ah, we got to run. You know, right. That's three times in a week of those kind of instances. And a lot of white people don't know anybody who isn't white, and they don't have those kind of experiences themselves or, or know people that care about have those kind of experiences. Those are real things that are, that are happening. And so I think as the church, it's not our responsibility to get people woke. Uh, I'm, I'm not woke, you have, or you, at least you have to describe to me what woke is. It's not our responsibility to get people woke, but man, the marginalized, the oppressed, the alien in our midst, which most Americans who are not white still feel like aliens, those are pretty core biblical values. So if we're not talking about those in the appropriate way, not the center point of every ser- series, but if there's not a place that in our ministry, I just don't think we're fulfilling the kingdom of God. Hmm. Yeah, you know, what is it Keller's four categories? I can't remember, and I don't think they're original to him, but it's something like, um, you know, biblical faithfulness, economics, sex, and justice are the four hallmarks. I may have those wrong. We'll, we'll link to the right stuff in the show notes. Um, and he says, liberals don't want to talk about um, sexuality, or, and they don't want to talk about money, and conservatives want to talk about, or they don't want to talk about biblical accuracy. Conservatives are fine with biblical accuracy and money, but they don't want to talk about justice, and they don't want to talk about economics in any yes. kind of, other than, you know, extreme capitalism. And I think that's a really good point. And if you find yourself, like, all four are awkward. And even on this podcast, you know, I, I don't have a system or anything like that, but I'm like, you know, I'm going to have another conversation about the racial situation that we're facing right now as a culture, or we're going to talk about the environment, or we're going to, and I know I'm probably angering people and losing them, but yet at the same time, I think these are really important issues. And when history looks back on us, they're going to ask how we responded in a moment like this. So that's good to know. Keep going. We can't be, we, we can't. No one wants to come to church and hear about race all the time. That includes an African-American or a non-white person. Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, 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 that can't be the focal point of our ministry. At least that's not what God's calling Crossroads to have as the focal point of its ministry. But we've got to be able to have a way to engage with it periodically in a way that's healthy. Or else I just don't think we're living the gospel. And not just when there's an incident that you have right. to respond to. Right? Yeah, I get it. So. Let's talk about it. You and I are probably similar vintage. Can I ask your age, Brian? 56. 56. Yeah, you're apart. You're a year younger. But you're right. You know, this is a time where a lot of leaders are asking exactly the question you asked, because we're all great when it's up and to the right. That's fantastic. We're not in a season where very few churches are growing right now. Or if they're growing, they're growing back, if you want to put it that way, um, hoping to reach where they were before. Can you talk about the process of trying to figure out whether you've got the energy to do this, the the fire in the belly, the the fuel in the tank to to move forward into a new season? 
Because I think that's a very real issue for a lot of leaders right now. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, hap- I'm happy to do that, though it's also painful still, some of it. I'll, I went through three distinct phases over a year period that ended about nine months ago. Uh, these three phases are similar, but they're also distinct. Beginning of COVID, it was like God breathed life into me. Like, okay, new challenge. This is amazing. We've been saying forever, church is about the building. We've been forming missional communities and getting people outside of their church bubbles for a long time. This is great. And the church hit it all guns. And we were just like, we were just like everybody else. Say, oh, our numbers are up. Our giving's up. You know, it was, woohoo, it was great. It was like that for, I don't know how many it was. And then, and then I went into a desert. Uh, a de- I went to three distinct phases. There's deserts. There's exhaustion and there's discouragement. Hmm. Don't confuse those three. Those three are three different things. With they feel the same, and sometimes, but they're different. Deserts are something that God initiates, and it's necessary for our spiritual formation. Now, this is this has been probably the third or fourth desert I've been through in my life. So I understood it. I'm like, ooh, I know what this is. Okay, at least I understand what I'm meant for. It's just like the nation of Israel going through their desert for forty years. Jesus going his desert for forty days. They start real abruptly. They're awful as long as you're in them. And then they they end real fast. So I was in a desert. And what a, a desert means, you don't feel God. You're, you're having doubts about your faith that you haven't had for a long, long time. Jesus, I believe, was having those doubts in those 40 days. It says the end of the 40 days. And then God sent angels to minister to him. So Jesus wasn't getting any ministered to for 40 days. He was on his own. So in my desert, I'm like, where is God? Where are you? I, I know what I'm in, but this is awful. So, and then I came out of it. I came out, it was boom. I came out of it. I can't define exactly the day or the moment, but it was real quick. Like, oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm back with God. The last time I was in a desert uh, was about eight years earlier. We had just ended a, a campaign. And I was in a desert and a woman came into me uh, and she had a notebook that had a bunch of paper clips in it. And we had built this huge building that wasn't being filled, 3,500 seats, two balconies, wasn't being filled. Oh, should we have done this at this time or not? She comes in. She said, I just got to tell you my story. I made a campaign commitment. I don't come to church anymore because uh, I can't afford the gas. Gas went up and I can't afford the gas to come down. So I've sacrificed coming to church and the gas to be able to meet my campaign commitment. I've kept a journal of every day and week. And in every journal entry, she had a dollar bill paper clipped. So I'm crying as she's telling me this. And she gives me her journal with all these, all these dollars. And it was like, and I read that. And then the next day, I read the Apostle Paul saying, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been this, I've been that, I've been scourged, I've been naked. You remember the last thing in that that sentence, what it is? Mm, Stoned? He says, beyond all this. Oh, beyond all this, yeah. Beyond, I face the pressure of my concern for the churches. He's saying, hey, look, I would take being naked and beaten over the pressure of being a church leader. That's what he's saying. So when I read those things, like dated, like bam, I came out of my, I came out of my, my, 
my desert. So it was the desert, and then I went from there into exhaustion. At that point, we were like a, a year into COVID. I was, I'm, 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 I'm freaking wasted here. I'm, I'm tired. I'm just tired. Mm. But I could fix that. I knew what that was. Let's take a few weeks off. Good. Did that. Oh, I can't. Okay, good, good. And then, and then we did the worst decision I've ever made as a leader at Crossroads. I had an outside speaker talk about the most divisive topic of our time, transgenderism. Mm. It should have been me to do it. I sh- uh, for a bunch of reasons. And it just, it just blew up and it awful blew up. I mean, I mean, headlines and people leaving and protests outside the church and people I'd led to Christ, uh, you know, taken off and just, uh, and I was, that was discouraged. That was the worst part actually. Cause how do you get out of discouragement? Mm. You know? Um, and so I, I languished inside of discouragement of the state of things for uh, several months. And I started evolving or coming out of that. And uh, I, I feel pretty, pretty darn good here right now. But those, those three phases I think are important for important for me to see. And they were all awful in their own way. Um, the worst, by the way, was the discouragement. That was, that, that was the worst. Cause you're not sure if there's an answer for that or what the answer is. But I think for your listeners, if they're not feeling well, it's really good to make sure you know which of those three things it is. Cause that will lead, lead you to, to different applications. I think. I really appreciate the transparency. Deserts, exhaustion, and discouragement. That's a really good filter, Brian. Um, that A season like that, like nine months or whatever it was, that could take out a 35-year-old leader easily. And it has. I mean, you've, you've read the numbers like I have. You've had the conversations like I have. A lot of people haven't made it in their current position over the last two years. Yeah. I'm just wondering, what is the source of the refuel? Like serving in one place for 26 years in the same role and refueling yourself through different seasons, that's a pretty rare thing, Brian. So how do you yeah. how do you do it? What have been what have been the keys to that? Thank you for that, Gary. Um, I didn't come to your podcast to feel good about myself, but thank you. <laughs> no, it's remarkable. Thank you for trying to do that. Listen, being a, being a similar <laughs> being a similar vintage, I get it. Yeah, I get it. <sighs> I, I think the old school word of calling is, is imperative. I think we've gotten really mushy on that, on that word. We've, we've interpreted calling as the thing that I'm doing or calling as the thing that I like to do or calling as any number of things other than I sense this is what God has had me do. And I just have to do it, period. It's, it's old school calling. And I felt an old school calling coming to Cincinnati and starting Crossroads. And, uh, and I have an anticipation that life is supposed to be hard. Life is hard. And we do ourselves a disservice to not say that. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. He, he, that's a promise from Jesus, by the way. We don't like to have that. In this life, you will have trouble. That's a promise from Jesus. So if we don't accept that ministry is going to be hard, we're going to have a hard time rebounding when it is hard, and we're going to have a hard time finding a vision for the future because if we're just looking for an easy day, we're we're just not going to be able to be there. So I just felt like to the core, I, I'm still called here. So if I'm called here, I have to feel as called to turning a church around or growing a church again or increasing the morale of our church. I have to feel as called to that as I did 
about the excitement of starting our second campus. Hmm. I've got to, and I've got to believe I'm the best guy qualified for this. Hmm. Like if, if, if they, if they put out a, one ad in the back of Willow Creek Exchange, which that's gone long gone by now. Yeah, long gone. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember some, it. I do. Right? Yeah. If there's some one ad that's put out, I go, if there was a person who I believe could do this better than me, I would say, okay, I'm I'm out. I'm out. And I'm you you gotta you gotta believe in you. You've got you gotta bet on you. I know that mm. sounds like some bravado. It's it's not. There's just gotta be a level of confidence you have of seeing how God has moved in you and worked on you and he's called you here. So you've got to be the most qualified for it. And then it's just a matter of carry of your energy. If you've been taking care of yourself, you have a reservoir of energy to, to, to pull from. And most of us know about we should eat right and work out. And I, I try to do that. But the two things that I've seen we're way off script here, by the way, you sent me. Uh, there's no script. Up. It's right. fine. Um, I, I have a I have a uh, a really sick hobby. <laughs> One of my hobbies is I like to dig deep on people who get DQ'd from ministry. Why? Really? Yeah. So if you're disqualified from ministry, you love to find out how I that do. happened. I do. Okay. And and I have enough networks right now that I can pretty much find out all the time. And I can wow. find somebody who knows and I figure out. By talking out. to them or talking to someone who knows? Sometimes it's talking to them. I've yeah. been able to, to do that a couple of times. And then other times it's talking with people who work closely with them. Um, and I'll tell you, there's two things that are present in every meltdown. I'm so taking notes. They are. Okay. Yes. There they are. One, lack of deep friendships inside the church. Not deep friendships mm. outside the church, inside the church. I went to a, mm. I went to a seminar that um, a very well-known pastor preached at the, the year before Crossroads started. And he said at this, this massive conference, the Willow Creek Conference, when that was a big thing way back when, he said, your people need to see you as Moses coming down from the mountain. And you cannot afford to let them see your problems and your warts. So you need to have your friends outside the church so your people will still receive your preaching. And I listened to that and I went, that's probably true and wise advice, but I can't live that way. There's no way. I'm going hmm. to have a friendship with somebody outside the church who doesn't come to my church. That means I'm going to be a friend with somebody who doesn't believe in the vision God's given me. I can't be your friend. I can be friendly to you, but you're, you're basically saying you're living in my city, but you don't feel like. God has called you to the thing he's called me to. I, I, I can't do it. So friends, in deep, deep friends who know all your garbage inside the church. And the second thing is a life-giving hobby. Mm. Um, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is. You want to, you want to finger paint, you want to, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to finger paint, but it is finger paint, motorcycle ride, hunt, ride your bicycle, camp, hike, whatever it is. Uh, when there's not a natural outlet for you to be refueled in your energy and when you don't have friends who are going to build you up and refuel you as a friend, you're just not going to have the energy in the tank for the next leadership grind that uh, is right before you. At least that's what I found. Hmm. Those are really good insights. And I wouldn't have guessed that those are the two, particularly there's a, a lot of debate, and I've been involved in those debates, about whether you can truly have friends inside the church. So I'm seven years since I stepped out of senior leadership. 
And it's really interesting because, you know, when you're, when you're the senior leader, you're the founder, I'm the founder of Conexus, you know, everybody's your friend, right? You got, you got hundreds, thousands of friends, and then you've got a circle of a lot of friends. But I always ask myself the question, how much of that is positional? Because am I your friend because I'm your pastor? Or am I your friend because I'm Carrie? And I'll be Carrie a lot longer than I'll be a pastor. And it's really interesting, almost seven years, six and a half, almost seven years after stepping out of the lead role, I have a couple of really close friendships in the church. And I think they have survived. It's amazing how many fell away. And that's fine. They they need to. I'm like, put your loyalty toward Jeff Brody. Like, that was my thing. He's my successor. Don't look at me. Look at him. I'm out of here. See ya. Goodbye. I still go, still give, still help. But, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not here to drive from the backseat. That's not my job. That's terrible succession plan. So do you find friendship is easier for you, Carrie, though, now that you're out of church leadership? It's less complicated. Yeah, yes. right. Yep. Yeah. Now, you know, I have this podcast. I have a blog. I get to serve a lot more people through this platform than I ever did through the local church. So I'm asking those same questions. I have lots of colleagues. People want to be on the podcast. People, you know, that. But yeah, I would say at this point, I have a clear sense of a few um, people, but I was advising a friend of mine in ministry who was really discouraged over some of the things that you were saying. You know, people left because he said this or didn't say that or said this the wrong way or waited too long to say X or whatever, or just didn't like his stance on stuff. And, you know, I remember sitting down with him and just saying, but listen, I won't say who it is, but it was just like, they're not your friends. And he was shocked and a little bit offended. And I'm like, you won't know. 10 years after you leave this job, Maybe you'll be 70. I don't know. But 10 years after you leave this job, you'll find out who your friends really were. And um, we we have even closer, like the people I'm thinking of, I'm closer to now than I was when I was a lead pastor of the church. And I'm friendly with everybody else, but I played a role in their lives. That's it. I played a role in their lives, a, a, a calling in their lives. I don't know. Healthy, unhealthy, you can feel free to deconstruct what I just said. No, I think it's healthy. I think that that's just part of what does come with the with the pastor mantle. And it's part of the reason why we have a hard time making friends inside the church is because we know yeah. that. We know that people might just try to get up close to us because we're their, the closest thing they're ever going to have to a celebrity. We, we know yeah. that people are rubbing up against us because we're their good luck charm. You know, we know mm. that people feel validated when they're seen with us. And we, we know those things. And so therefore that's gross. And we just kind of want to push arm. But we got to recognize if we don't let anyone get close to us at all, we're really going to be hurting. And you've you've got to take a risk. And uh, I'm fortunate to be in a church uh, that that's the best thing this church gives me. They let Brian Tome be Brian Tome. They know that they know that I'm a fan of tobacco in every shape and form. They know that you know I've got rough edges. They know I like to slam some beers. They know I do things dangerously and I don't wear a helmet every once in a while. Uh, and they, they know my heart and they say, we'll still take you. <laughs> mm, and when you can fully have a known, fully good. loved, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. It's really beautiful, but it's, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be uh, vulnerable in order to, to get that blessing. And, and a lot of guys um, have a hard time doing that. And, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. You opened up with something that was really vulnerable. You talked about being adopted and your wound is rejection. And I think a lot of us come into ministry, well, we all come into ministry with wounds. 
And it resonated with me because I think though that is one of my wounds, rejection. And I wasn't adopted, but I think in childhood, you know, you just have certain beliefs. And we moved a lot as a kid when I was a kid. And, you know, you're right. I would burn you before you burned me. And I'm, I'm actively disentangling myself from that reaction. How have your vulnerabilities and insecurities manifested themselves in ministry? And how are you dealing with them? Well, the rejection one causes me to hear criticism even when someone isn't criticizing me. Uh, I'm just too quick to hear the negative and, and I'm too quick to take things um, personally. It, uh, it also causes me to judge and evaluate people on whether or not they're trustworthy before I can actually listen to them. Because if I listen to you and then you reject me and I've applied your, your counsel, then I'm, I'm really screwed, right? Or at, least, or at least that's what I'm thinking. It causes me to, I get an email. To this day, I get an email. The first thing I do when I get an email is I, I look at the last name, who's sending this, and then I scan the whole email and try to figure out, is this negative? Is this going to be criticism? And once I determine it's not, then I go, okay, I can read this one. Now, if I determine in the scan it's going to be negative, I'll still look at it, but I got to like, it's like the Batmobile, right? You got to go, kush, 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 kush. you got to put your, put your armor, armor all over you. So I like to tell people, I am, I am way more insecure than I give myself credit for. And it's mm. okay if you know that. And I, and I know that about myself and, and I'm still growing in that. Is it harder because the church is large? Harder to deal yeah, with? Yeah, harder because you're getting public mail from people who don't have a relationship with you. You know, it's kind of like authors yeah. reading one-star reviews on Amazon. If you really want a ticket to a bad day, that's a good way to do it in my books. But I'm just curious, like, you know, if you're, if you're getting, I think about our churches when they were little, or you think about, you know, crossroads in the first year or two where you knew everyone's name, their dog's name, everything was, I'm just curious. I've never asked anybody this question 500 some on episodes in, was it easier to deal with criticism when it was a group of people you knew rather than large groups of tens of thousands of people you don't know? Yeah, the criticism, I'll just speak for myself. Yeah, yeah, please. The criticism uh, really hurts when it just comes from people you know. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's the ones that hurt. Like average person who says whatever, and you get over that pretty quickly. But, you know, person who used to be on your payroll five years ago, you know, and then they, mm. they take the social media about it. Um, someone else that you've poured time in that, that, that says something hurtful. There's the ones that are the, the most difficult, but I also have to say too, uh, for those of us uh, who are representing smaller churches, one of the things that you get at a smaller church that you lose at larger churches, you actually get more communication. People are shocked to hear that I get fewer emails and letters today with the church in the you know five figures than I did when Crossroads was 500. Wow. And I, I don't know. I'm not sure why. Is it because everyone believes I'm overwhelmed and I'm not going to get it or I'm not going to hear it? I get, I get less feedback on my message that I give now than I did in 1996. I'm just talking about general feedback. 
letters. Yeah, you know what? That's true. Yeah. You know, other than social media or public inboxes, but yeah, I have a pretty quiet personal inbox, which is interesting and not, not a ton of feedback. And as our church grew, even through the pastor hat, you know, people would almost always preface every conversation with me going, I know you're incredibly busy, but blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, no, I'm not that busy, but. Well, you never yeah, tell them that. You don't yeah, tell yeah. them that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes very who. busy. Oh, very, yes, very it depends busy. Who. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. Even you though I've given away all my responsibilities to other staff members who are paid to do what I used to do. Oh, yes, very, very, very busy. <laughs> Can't be a good smoke screen for getting some deep work done. <laughs> right. um, okay, let's talk about innovation because you have innovated in different areas over your time in leadership. I want to talk about you've made some really good progress in figuring out digital ministry. And let's talk about that through the lens of the last five years, pre and post pandemic. So what are some of the things you've tried that have worked? What are some things you, you know, spaghetti you threw against the wall and it didn't stick? What, uh, what are you learning in the, on the digital front, Brian? Well, the digital stuff is a way to f- learn and flex another muscle because I'm having to learn and lean into other people. The dig- digital space isn't isn't native to me. I'm, I'm addicted to my cell phone as is many people, but just understanding and getting it, it's, it's not native. So I've had to really lean into our younger leaders who have a real vision and calling towards it. And therefore I don't have, I don't have spidey sense. I don't have a very good spidey sense on it and I got to trust my people. And so I'll go along with them and say, okay, we'll do that. And then stuff doesn't work. We've been on the bleeding edge of investing in, in it and we bled and we've, just made a lot of investments or done a lot of things that haven't worked and we needed to try them. And we're still in the experimenting process. I don't think anyone has figured this out. I think some people are having more success than others, but I don't think anyone's figuring this out. I think churches could go one of two ways. I think you could go old school, like let's keep an email list and a basic static, a basic static web web page. I think that would work yeah, yeah. or you got to go all in and see if you're going to be the lucky one to be the next Amazon. At mm. some point, someone's going to crack the code. Jeff Bezos was asked again and again when, back when Amazon, it wasn't too long ago when Amazon was just losing money hand or fist. They were only making money because everyone thought that someday they might, it was all their stock price. They, they weren't <laughs> operating on profit. Right. And, this is all detailed in the book called The Everything Store. It's really a good book. And he said, he said, it's not working yet. <laughs> and he had that ability to say yet, but I believe it will. I think that's the way the, the digital space is going to be with ministry. I think there's some bright spots. I think some people are doing it better than others. But I think there's a huge, huge bushel of fruit that's yet to be had. Where we are now as our, our experimentation and the mistakes we've made have led us to be in a place which still is not, I think, where we're ultimately going to be, but a place where a lot of churches would probably scratch their heads and disagree with, and we're where we are simply and purely because of the data. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a data-driven thing. So if you want me to go through some of those Yeah, things, let's talk about that. What, what would be the points of disagreement, and what do you mean by, by data-driven? Okay, well first, you got to figure out what are you trying to do with your with your digital space? Are you trying to on one end give 
tithers in your church who are vacationing in Florida the ability to tune in and connect with your church to worship. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's one one side. On the other side of the spectrum, or are you trying to reach someone who doesn't know Christ, who will never go inside of your building? And I do mean that. You got to write. I mean, never. If you're if you're a Freemason, we had a Mason building catacord to one of our campuses. I don't care if you're a Freemason and you were nice. I don't care that the Freemasons help people with burn victims. I, I, I'm not going into a Freemason building. I'm, yeah. That's just not yeah. my thing. I'm, and more and more Americans are like that. They're just not going to do it, or at least not their first step. That's the other extreme. We're trying to program for that other extreme. That other extreme, Terry, is a massive market that no one's that no oh, one's going like, after. You know, hundreds of millions of Americans. Period. Well, it's not hundreds of millions. It's seventy-four million. Is it here, seventy-four million? It's seventy-four million. Uh, let me tell you how I know that. <laughs> we have people. We have people. You're data driven. <laughs> yes, we're data driven. We've and we live in the land of Procter and Gamble, largest advertiser and researcher in the world here in Cincinnati. Uh, um, you've got market analytics folks who are in our church who we hire on staff, all that kind of stuff. And so here's what we looked at. There's a huge difference between somebody who's only had face-to-face relationships and somebody who has made a friendship online. When I'm's dog food made big, big money, it's when they realized that the key indicator for who their market was, was dog owners who let their dogs sleep in their bed. When they realized that wow. was a differentiating factor, they were able to market towards that and they took off. Like they didn't care about anybody other kind of dog owner. Dog owners who like to have their dogs sleep in their bed because they'll pay more money, all that kind of stuff. For online church, we realized the key thing to market towards and go after is somebody who has made a deep friendship online and has never met the person face-to-face. Wow. And for someone like you and I, that sounds crazy. We have a, but, but younger folks, that's not the case. We have a community pastor who, uh, a community pastor, one of our 10 community pastors who had two groomsmen in his wedding who the first time he met them was his bachelor party. My goodness. Wow. <laughs> from, from around the country. And that's, that's legit. That's kind of, that is a real thing. Yes. And you're saying that is 74 million people? Yes. Yeah, so if you take a look at what, what, what our research is, not asking people, would you go to a church online? You'll get about 10 people who do that. But when we ask them, would you like uh, a weekly connection point? Would you like coaching in, in how to improve your life? Would you like a spiritual experience? And would you be open to these things in a digital forum? The market for that is 74 million people in the country, 74 million. And there's, there's just not many people who are, who are going after that and who are ordering for that. So that's a piece of data. Now, here's another piece of data for you. The person who is in a building and they are going to Florida and they're just tuning in or a person's a building and this is a hectic Sunday. So I'm just going to stream that day. They're, they're fine to watch your services in the in the room because they've been there before. They understand it's where they are. But the person who's never going to come in your building or, ha- or at least hasn't been in your building, you can increase their reten- the retention rate of them sticking around if you have a, a, if you have a um, 
service that one starts with the message. No worship. Mm. Forget worship. You don't do as good as Bethel and Hillsong. And if people want that, they're going to go to them, not you. Sorry, sorry to burst your bubble. And if you do do that, you put it afterwards. We don't even put any worship in our online experience. It's mm. a teaching Just with talking, some announcements. Preaching. And at the end, if you want to opt into worship, you can opt into worship. I know for me, I'm big into worship. I'm big into Bible. I'm I, I'm pretty good at being a Christian, Carrie. I'm pretty good at it. I've been doing it for a while. And when I'm when I'm streaming at home, I don't I don't want to sing out loud in a freaking room by myself or even with my wife. It's weird. It's awkward. Now that's me. The average person just doesn't dig that. So you gotta you gotta figure out your worship differently. And then we found out this is another big one. We found out that your teaching, if you're going to reach people outside your building, but your teaching is always inside the building, you're gonna limit your reach. Wow. Retention goes up 20%. 20%. All these view, people say, oh, you know, we're, we're streaming. You know, we've, we've got 100,000 people, you know, streaming, 30,000. You know, if you go, if you ask the next question, how many people are streaming four minutes in? They, one, don't know the answer to that question, hmm. or two, don't want to tell you the answer. <laughs> it's Who cares how many people have clicked on your <laughs> Facebook ad and looked at a little bit? Like four minutes in, 20 minutes in. Where, were, where are they? We don't count anybody until it's like 20 minutes. Then we'll say, okay, we'll count them. They feel like when there is something that is on location or something you've done outside of a building, they're saying, oh, this is for me. When it's inside of a building, they go, well, that's for people who could be there. I'm never going to be them. I can't be one of you. I'm, I'm not welcome here. But when you create something that's outside of a building, an on-location teaching, I just did mine today. So I've got a teaching coming up on Psalm 137. Smashing babies' heads against rocks, which I've never heard anyone preach a sermon on that. So I'm going to do that sermon to start a psalm series. Just for I'm going fun. To do, yeah, yeah, just for fun. Um, I just pre-recorded in a bar with a karaoke thing uh, just before this podcast what's going to run for our online community. And it's work. It's hard. But we just found so the two data. Two separate very, very messages. One for online, one for in the room. Yes. One online wow. is shorter. And it's filled, I mean, the same content, basically, it's the same study, but I'm formatting it differently. Hmm. And so you shoot that, all of those on location somewhere? Yes, all of those on location someplace. We've And we've again, we've tried around with the studio. We've done studio. We've done on a bare stage. We've done, you know, so we find location other places. Now, there is, there is one, um, one uh, exception to that. When we break wild horses on stage, that's the one thing that's not tested out as well. Because that's what you were doing, breaking wild horses on stage. Yes, yes. We've done it twice. We have I a guy I've come in. I think I've seen that video. You better, yeah. better walk people through it now that we've raised it. All right. So I, I met a guy who is a, he's a former a professional rodeo guy, and he's a legitimate horse whisperer, and he has a ministry where he goes into prisons, and he breaks a wild horse in front of prisoners. And the metaphor is that uh, people think a wild horse is a stronger horse. A broken horse lives longer than a wild horse and is stronger and faster than a wild horse. One man on a broken horse can round up an entire herd of wild horses. And that's the metaphor with God. We need to allow God to break us or, as he would say, actually free us. It's not until we come under the authority of one who is stronger than us and wiser than us and has a vision for us that we actually can attain our capacities. Okay. So he tells us like, oh my gosh, we got to have that at Crossroads. He, said, yeah. ah. he goes, ah, everyone says that. 
Everyone says that, but no one can do it. No one, no one ever does it. I said, well, we'll do it. So found out you needed 40 foot stage to be able to put the corrals on. We had to find wild horses. And then I had to tell our financial folks, Hey, look, we're doing this. Uh, if you don't want to tell insurance, that's fine. Don't tell insurance. If you want to tell insurance and make them do it, it's fine, but we're, we're going to do this. It was one of the bigger risks we did. And so when someone watches a horse that's been beaten or has never been touched, come under the loving gaze of a trainer and you see that, shirt, that, that horse melt before your eyes and you say, that's me, I'm that horse. He'll find bruises on this, these horses and he'll press into them. He'll press into, because he realized if I can get the horse to allow me to press into its pain, it will trust me and there'll be a bond. And that's what God does to us. He finds those, those tender places and he presses in. So when, well, every time we do, we've done it two years now in a row and everyone in the place is crying and all that stuff. And, th- and that thing for online, that one plays really well because people know it's not doctored. You haven't been out in a field and it's been right. you know, three hours. This is 50 minutes, horses snorting and sweating and won't let anyone touch it to he's riding bareback on the thing. And it's, it's amazing. So uh, by the way, that guy's name is Todd Pierce. You should do that. Any pastor who can afford it and takes it, your people's hearts will melt. You'll see a, a spiritual revival like you can't imagine because there's a massive connection. So there we go. Brian, this is an incredible conversation. So helpful. Hey, before we wrap up, you've got a real heart for men and a lot of people struggle with that. You know, churches are often frequented more often by women than men. And um, some, not all of those women, would wish that maybe their partner, their husband would come with them. Um, what have been some keys to really breaking through to men? Because they're either not in community or it tends to be a very superficial community that men will join. Yeah, I think the first thing we need, Carrie, is empathy for men. They're hurting. I, th- it, I think it's harder in America to be a woman than a man still. But the statistics still don't lie. Men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women. Men are three times more likely to have a mental illness than women. Men are two times more likely to have an alcohol or substance abuse related incident than are women. There is a loneliness epidemic with men. They have gone inward. They feel ill-equipped to function in life. And they're just not doing well. And and the average church is just not able to speak that language or quite frankly, really even interested in speaking that language or figuring out how to do that. So we realize there's a limitation to what you can do in a 70-minute service with men. We, I'm, I'm a man and I kind of have some masculine tendencies. So there's some things that could go along with that that helps us reach men. But the bottom line is guys don't need to be inside a building for 70 minutes. Guys need to be in, a, in an area that's pushing them and they can form real deep relationships. So we've done a thing called man camp. We had about eighteen thousand guys go through it. We had thirty-eight states come to it last last year. Um, guys just come and like just get rocked, man. Have fun, laugh their butts off, have intensive, intensive prayer that they can do. We're seeing legitimate healings, and and that's right next to the sixty kegs of beer that we've kicked. And it's interesting mm-hmm. the, at the beginning of the weekend, the lines are big for the for the kegs of beer, and then at the end of the weekend, the lines are biggest to get inside the prayer tent. And it's those wow. mashing together of those things and the games and the arm wrestling and the worship and 
Um, it's hard to describe. We like to say what happens at man camp stays at man camp. So we can't say too much about it, but that's the only thing I've been able to be a part of where I've seen the dial moved in guys' lives. Brian, it's been a, a fascinating conversation. If people want to track with you, where can they do it? Crossroads and then more information on man camp or your latest books, your writing resources for men. So tell us a little bit about the headquarters of where they can find all that. Uh, easiest is just bryantome.com. And that's also my social media handles too. bryantome.com. My name is Brian Tome. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. Uh, Carrie, it's been a real honor. You've built into me a lot from the, the, the wide variety of guests you have. I'm a budding podcast host myself, and I love taking notes from you and seeing how you're doing what you're doing. You're, you're helping us all and setting a good course for us all. So thanks, bro. Well, I appreciate Brian's vulnerability. And if you want show notes to anything we talked about, you can find them at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 506. And we even have transcripts, so you can search those. We want to thank our partners for this episode. Thank you to He Gets Us Partners. Uh, they are helping so many people connect with people who have questions about Jesus. If your church wants to get involved, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry to sign up and join the largest faith campaign in human history and Convoy of Hope. You can help war victims in Ukraine by going to convoyofhope.org slash donate. Well, we had a pretty killer guest lineup interviewing Malcolm Gladwell soon. Ramit Sethi is coming up. Rich Velotis is back. We also are going to talk to Nona Jones, Sint Marshall, she is the first black female CEO of an NBA franchise, Patrick Lencioni, Tim Tebow, and so many more. Next episode, a book that really got on my radar screen earlier this year called Breaking the Social Media Prism, authored by Chris Bale. I talked to Chris about all of the misconceptions I had about social media and the trolls and how 6% of social media users generate 73% of the extreme content. Here's an excerpt. I mean, I'm just going to give you an old piece of advice, but it's the best advice I know of, which is don't feed the trolls. You know, these people are attention starved, right? Their principal goal is to get some kind of reaction out of you. You know, even a, even a, uh, you know, a lot of people just fire back and insult at a troll, right? That's, that's the worst thing you can do. They want to upset you. They want to get you riled up. But even, you know, and a lot of times, uh, you know, good faith attempts to kind of correct the record can be counterproductive, right? Because that troll is just going to continue pushing buttons. That's, that's what they're after, right? They're, they're out there to impress their friends, to get more followers for harassing people like you. So number one bit of advice there is don't feed the trolls. That's the next time on the podcast. Uh, excited for you to hear that episode. It's really, really good. I love it when people challenge my assumptions and I'm like, you know what? I was wrong about that. And uh, Chris is going to do that. We have a great conversation. And if you're trying to figure out the tone online, how to deal with trolls online, what the life of a troll is really like, hint, it's kind of pathetic. That's next episode on the podcast. And I want to thank you for listening and for sharing this episode. I also want to give you something for free. So I've been coming alongside preachers over the last little while. And if you preach, or frankly, if you're a business leader who communicates, I'll tell you what, I'm thinking about maybe at some point I need to do a business leader boot camp for communication. Somebody told me years ago that preachers have the best communicators on the planet. And I think there is some truth to that. But, you know, it's something I've done 
all of my life, almost, my adult life anyway. And I want to come alongside and help you. So if you're a pastor, definitely. If you're a business leader, you may even want to check this out. I've got some free proven steps that can help you give a memorable, relevant, and engaging sermon week after week or a talk. So if you want a 10 proven step cheat sheet and a free teaching series, go to preachingcheatsheet.com. Just preachingcheatsheet.com. Absolutely free, easy to implement, and uh, it'll help you preach better sermons as early as this week. And I'd love a couple of business leaders to check it out. Next time you got to like motivate your team, try it. Let me know what you think. I can be reached at carry at carrynewhoff.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, I am really enjoying being able to bring you this week after week after week. And I hope that our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.